You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to start with a simple riddle this morning, likely a riddle that many of you have heard before. And certainly as you open to Ecclesiastes 3, you'll be able to guess the answer to this riddle. So I'm going to give you a description and you have to guess what I'm describing. Here we go. It's free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. And once you've lost it, you can never get it back. Okay? It's free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. And once you've lost it, you can never get it back. Of course, the answer is time. That's right. And this riddle sort of illustrates to us how time is a rather complex concept to wrap our heads around. It's a bit of an enigma. Because on the one hand, we know what time is. It's such an integral part of our daily lives. We live in time. It's a part of what it means to be human. Karl Barth said that time is the form of our existence. To be man is to live in time. And so there's something very basic about time on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's a difficult concept to explain and to fully wrap our minds around. Think about how would you, how would you explain time to someone else? How would you give a definition of time to a child such that a child could understand what you're defining? It's not very easy. And so out of curiosity, I looked up the definition of time on dictionary.com, and this is the first thing that popped up, the first definition. You can tell me whether or not you think this is a clear and concise definition. Time is the system of those sequential relations that any event has to any other as past, present, or future, indefinite and continuous duration regarded as that in which events succeed one another. Okay? Maybe you can wrap your mind around that definition, but it's certainly not a simple one because time is a complex concept. And so here we are, January 1st, 2023, the dawn of a new year. And usually at the beginning of a new year, we have a chance to take stock of our lives, to reflect on the year that has passed us by, to look forward to the year ahead. And as we do so, it's hard not to reflect in general upon the passing of time and how quickly it passes us by. And so I'm in my mid-30s now, and time seems to be going by faster than ever. Each year seems to go by quicker than the last. Maybe that's true for you as well. It's kind of funny how time works that way. I can think back to when I was a little child and summer vacation from school would happen. And that, that would seem to last, you know, for, for a year or so. We'd come back in September and all of our friends would look different. They'd have all grown. It seemed as though so much time has passed throughout the summer. And now in adulthood, summer seems to go by in the blink of an eye. It doesn't seem to be nearly as long as it used to when I was a child. I look back at pictures of Aaron and I before we had children, different memories. And they seem to feel like yesterday, like they were yesterday. And yet now here we are, we have four kids and one of them is already eight years old. And so we think about these sorts of things and what do we say? Where is all the time gone? Where did the time go? The passage in Ecclesiastes that we'll be looking at today has a great deal to say and to teach us about the passing of time and the changing of the seasons of our lives and how we ought to live in light of that reality. We will be reminded as we look at this text that we are not in control of time. We don't control the seasons of our lives. God does. God is the one that providentially moves time along and orchestrates all of human history, including the very events and stages of our lives, according to his perfect plan and his wisdom and his purpose. We will see that for everything there is a season. There is a time for every matter under heaven. And of course, there's coming a day when our time on this earth will come to an end. And after that will come the judgment. And so how ought we to live in response to these truths that we're going to look at? Well, we'll see that we ought to learn to enjoy the time that we've been given 
to the glory of God, to seize the day, so to speak, and to find enjoyment in all that he's blessed us with, our work, the toils of our lives, and even enjoyment in the simple activities of eating and drinking, for this is all God's gift to man. We will see. So let me read Ecclesiastes 3 to you now, and then we'll discuss it together. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see themselves, that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, yet again, for your holy, inspired, and errant word, which we can hold in our hands, which we can open, which we can read, which we can study, which we can hear preach this morning. We pray that you would speak to us, O Lord, from your word. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and anoint the words that proceed from my mouth, that every one of them would be from your Spirit, and that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we may leave here changed and more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book, and it's believed to have been written by King Solomon due to some of the internal evidence that we see in the book, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. The author introduced himself as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And so we can safely assume this is King Solomon, but he doesn't actually name himself. He refers to himself as this figure called the preacher. The preacher, and he writes from this perspective throughout the book. In Ecclesiastes, it's, it's a very difficult book to understand and to interpret. It deals with various existential questions that people ask themselves about their life and the troubles that they face. And as it seeks to answer these questions, it's filled with a brutal, almost nihilistic pessimism about the going-ons of life, the happenings of our lives. And yet in the midst of all these pessimistic rants that make up the book of Ecclesiastes, you have these statements of optimism and Positivity and these calls for joy kind of sprinkled throughout the book. And so as you read it, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. And so just consider the very first words that the preacher has to say in verse 2 of chapter 1. 
after he introduces himself, this is the first thing he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Okay, how's that to start a book? And then over the next two chapters, he begins to explain some of the vanities that he's seen in his life in detail. And so you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and on a surface level, you're left sort of scratching your head. How can a Christian, how can a man of God speak this way about life? It's so, so negative. It's so, so pessimistic. How can he speak this way about life? And commentators are divided as to how to answer this question. And so what some believe is that Solomon here is deliberately contrasting two worldviews, two perspectives in order to describe the tensions of life. So on the one hand, he's explaining what a pessimistic, godless existence looks like, and he's contrasting it with an optimistic, God-centered existence. And so it's as though Ecclesiastes is almost a conversation between a Christian and a secularist. They're having a dialogue about life. And while there may be some merit to that position, I, I don't actually believe that's the case. I tend to believe that Solomon in this book is simply being brutally honest about what life is like. What it's like to live as a finite, helpless, weak human being in a sin-cursed world that's completely out of our control. He's just being brutally honest. He's being honest about how there's no true meaning and there's no true purpose that can be found anywhere in the temporal world. There's no meaning in life apart from God himself. And so in that sense, he can say it's all vanity. It's a striving after the wind. It's futile. And here we arrive at chapter 3, and we have this brutally honest dialogue about the passing of time. And as we look at this chapter together, we're going to look at three realities of our existence. And then in conclusion, toward the end, we'll look at three responses we ought to have to those realities. Three realities of our existence, three responses we ought to have to those realities. Here's the first reality. Number one, we are all slaves to the tyranny of time. We are all slaves to the tyranny of time. The first eight verses of this chapter are very well known. Songs have been written about them because they're captivating. It's, it's beautiful poetry. And in the Hebrew, apparently, it's, it's even more evident how beautiful the poetry is. This is one of the most beautiful poems in the Old Testament. But even as there's a certain beauty in the poetry of these words, there's also something that's haunting and unsettling about them as we look at them together. Verses 1 to 8 describe really the cycle of life, the, the ebbs and flows, the, the ups and downs of life. And there are 14 couplets of activities. So in each couplet, one activity is given and then its opposite or its reversal is given. Or you can think of it this way, you have a positive given and then it's negative. Or you have a negative given first and then it's positive. Such that if you add them all together, they cancel each other out and you're left with nothing. And we see as we read through these changing times that we have no control over them. We don't control any of these activities and the timing for which they occur. If anything, they control us. Our lives are governed by each of these times. They, they move us along from one stage of life to the other. And so in that sense, it's as though these times and these seasons are our masters, and we are their slaves. One commentator said that these eight verses communicate something oppressive and tyrannical. That's where I got that word from, tyrannical, about the nature of time. It's oppressive. We're bound by it. Another commentator suggested it's as though the preacher in Ecclesiastes feels imprisoned by these changing seasons and sequences of time. And some of these couplets of activities are somewhat difficult to interpret, but the message of these first eight verses is not found in trying to discern the exact meaning of every single activity, but rather taking them together as a whole. They're meant to be a, give us a description of the activities of life that make up the time between our birth and our death. Every matter under heaven, as it says in verse 1. And so, verse 2 begins very fittingly. A time to be born, 
and a time to die. There's a time for life to begin. There's a time for life to end. And so right away, we're reminded that we're not in control of any of these events. Okay? You didn't get to choose when or where or to whom you were born. Had no control. And you don't get to choose when or how you die. This is up to God. And so for some, this past year, 2022, this was a time of new life. Right? Babies were born. There are babies in this room right now that weren't here a year ago. We praise God. Wonderful. But for others, 2022 was a time of death. Loved ones passed away. This is the cycle of life. We have no power over it. Everyone, by definition, has been born, and one day everyone will die. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. And then the events that follow, that first couplet in verse 2, really describe everything that happens in between those two events. They fill in the gap between our birth and our death. And there are some unsettling implications about the nature of these activities. One such implication is that nothing on this list has any permanence to it. Okay, think about it. It's all temporary. For every activity, there's an opposite activity that will bring it to an end. Right? Summer will always lead to fall. Fall will always lead to winter. Winter will always lead to spring. And in the same way, the seasons of life will come and go, and there'll be a new season right after it. And so if we pursue any of these activities or we pursue accomplishments on this earth as though they have any permanence to them, as though they will last, as though somehow they will transcend the time in which we live, then we will be left wanting. And one day we will die, and a generation or two from now, no one will even remember who we were. There's an impermanence here to our actions and our activities and our accomplishments in this life. They, they don't last. They're quickly forgotten. They're even reversed. So we plant something one day knowing that on another day we might pluck it right up. Or we build something up knowing that one day it will be torn down. In fact, I, you know, house renovations are nice, but the one thing I find frustrating is that they'll ne it'll never be as new and as nice as on day one. And then you start dinging up the cabinets, and you see the scratches, and eventually it'll just be torn up. We build only to one day tear down. Matthew Henry said this. He said, what can a man promise himself from planting and building when that which he thinks is brought to perfection may so soon and will so surely be plucked up and broken down? It's all temporary. We rejoice one day knowing that a time of weeping is likely just around the corner. It's impermanent. We also see as we read through this list that there's a certain almost mundane predictability to this flow of time, this pattern, the changing of seasons. And so I'm not, you know, I can't tell the future. I don't know what the future holds for you in 2023, but what I can say is that on a macro level, it's not going to look very different than 2022. For the most part, it's going to be exactly the same. Tomorrow morning on the first Monday of a new year, for most of you, if not all of you, it will be more or less identical to the first Monday of last year. You will get up in the morning, you'll have a coffee, you'll eat some breakfast, you'll go to work, you'll come home, you'll have dinner, you'll go to bed, you'll wake up the next morning and do it all over again. And throughout the year ahead, there will be some births, and sadly, there will be some deaths. There will be some times of laughter and dancing, and there will also be some times of weeping and mourning. And we're not in control of any of it. We have little say over the situations that lead us to weep and to mourn or to laugh and to dance. We don't choose them. We don't pick our spots. It seems like we're just cogs in this big machine of time. We're just running in a big cosmic hamster wheel and we have no control over it. We wake up so that we can go to work, so that we can make food, so that we can survive, so that we can wake up, so that we can go to work, so that we can eat food, so that we can survive, and on and on and on it goes until we die. And so in an earthly sense, this is why Solomon can say it's all vanity. It's a striving after the wind. It seems so pointless. 
Verse 3 says, a time to kill and a time to heal. Well, one of the things that, that changed for my family and I in 2022 this past year is that we made the impulsive, perhaps even unwise decision of buying a dog. And of all the times we could have done so, speaking about timing, we did so in early September, right before a new school year started, new routines, and right before a new ministry year kicked off, probably the busiest time of year for our family. But this is when we decided to buy a dog. That's bad timing. Somehow God is sovereign over that. I believe that. And so I'm new to dog ownership. Over Christmas, our dog got quite sick to her stomach. And I resolved I was going to try and avoid taking the dog to the vet and pouring more money into this thing. And so I, along with a little help from Google, decided I was going to nurse this dog back to health on my own. And uh, we went through a few interesting days. I'll just keep it at that. Uh, But thankfully, the dog's back to full health now. And so for her, it was a time to heal. But in the back of my head, as I put in time and effort and money into this dog, I also know that there's coming a day in the future where this dog will have to be put down. All this work and this effort and this money into this dog that won't last, it will eventually, she will eventually be put down. What's the point? Okay, some of you are sending daggers to me right now as I say that. (laughs) But it's true. There's a time to heal and there's a time to kill. Farmers know a thing or two about this, right? On the same day, you might have the same farmer nursing a calf to health and slaughtering another cow that they had previously nursed to health. This is the cycle of life. And rarely on the surface do these changing times and seasons seem to have any lasting meaning. And so when we do find ourselves in a moment that seems meaningful to us, what do we want to do? We want to stay there. Right? We say things like, if only I could slow down time. If only I could live in this moment forever. If only I could make this moment last. But we can't. Because we're not in control. And so we do the next best thing. We we take photographs. we, We take videos. We write in our journals. We put up a post on Facebook to try to Help us remember this one point in time because we know that it will quickly pass us by. And it may even be reversed by some sort of opposite event or activity. How many parents see their kids growing older and they wish they could just stop time? They wish their kids could stay that age that they are now just a little while longer. How many wish they could go back to simpler times in their life? Or they wish they could go back to fix a mistake they made that they're still bearing the consequences of in the present. But we can't. Because we're not in control. In fact, even the aspects of our lives we think we're in control of, we have far less control than we believe. Derek Kidner explains it this way in his commentary on this text. He said, Obviously, we have little say in the situations which move us to weep or laugh, mourn or dance. But our more deliberate acts, too, may be time-conditioned more than we suppose. Who would have imagined, we sometimes say, that the day would come when I should find myself doing such and such and seeing it as my duty? You ever say that? Who would have imagined that I'd be here in life? He continues, so the peace-loving nation prepares for war, or the shepherd takes the knife to the creature he has earlier nursed back to health. The collector disperses his hoard. Friends part in bitter conflict. The need to speak out follows the need to be silent. Nothing we do, it seems, is free from this relativity and this pressure, almost dictation from outside. End quote. All that to say the seasons of life change and the time simply goes on and on and on and on. We just sang about it. It's an ever-rolling stream. And that's really the point of these first eight verses isn't it? That there's a time and a time, 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 repeated 14 times. It goes on and on and on, and we're left wondering, what is the point of it all? Why is it this way? And that brings us to the second reality of our existence that we'll look at this morning. 
Number two, we, are, we all are created with a longing for eternity. We all are created with a longing for eternity. So after we work our way through verses 1 to 8, in verse 9, we have this rhetorical question. What gain has the worker from his toil? Okay, and this question is not asking how much money does someone make for what they do, for the work that they do. That's not what it's asking. Rather, it's a question along the lines of what's the point? What what are we struggling for? What do we toil for? Even the money that we do make and the wealth that we accumulate for ourselves, it all amounts to nothing in the end because we return to dust and we can't take it with us. So what gain is there to be had? What is the point? And the preachers asked this question already in this book in chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 2, verse 22. And so this seems to be a recurring theme, a recurring question. And how many people in the world around us, perhaps even some in this room, are wrestling with existential questions along these lines? Right? Why, why do I even get up in the morning? Like, what, what gain for, is there for me in getting up? What what is the point of this mundane existence? Verse 10 says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The word for business can also be translated heavy burden. Heavy burden. So walking about this earth, constrained by time and its changing seasons, trying to find meaning and purpose in that which is temporal and fleeting, what does it all amount to? A heavy burden. It's a burden, a burden that we cannot alleviate on our own, and one that only becomes more crushing as the time passes us by. That's why sometimes older folks who don't have Christ, they just get bitter with age because the burden is crushing them more than it did when they were younger. This is what life is like apart from Jesus Christ. And notice God is the one who has made it this way. God is the one that has given mankind this heavy burden according to verse 10. In chapter 1 verse 13, he puts it this way. He says, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business, an unhappy burden, heavy burden that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This is what your lost neighbors and coworkers experience on a daily basis. They're carrying this unhappy, heavy burden. They don't know what gain there is to be had in this life. They don't know what the point of it all is. They lack purpose. They don't even know why they wake up in the morning. They lack direction. They lack peace. And so what do they do? They look for it in the temporal. They look for it in the temporal. They look for it in money, but money can't lift the burden. They look for it in leisure, but leisure can't lift the burden. They look for it in alcohol or drugs or sex or relationships, but none of those things can relieve their burden. The relief never comes because the relief cannot be found in the temporal. And verse 11 gives us some insights into why this burden is so crushing It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And that's a great phrase there. God has made everything beautiful in its time. That means that that he has orchestrated every event to be beautifully fitted for its occasion. In other words, it's saying that God's timing is perfect. That the changing of seasons and the passing of time, it's all a beautiful outworking of God's perfect plan, of his creativity, of his power. But we can only come to know that and see it that way if we have faith in Christ and we see things through that lens. Which We'll come back to that later. What I want to focus on now is that phrase, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, this is true of every man and woman. God has put eternity into their hearts. Everyone has been given a capacity for eternal things. Everyone's concerned about their future on some level. We want to understand the beginning from the end, and so we we ask some of these big questions of life. We wonder about life after death. 
We have a sense that there's something beyond us, that there's something that transcends us, and we even long for it, but we can't quite put our finger on it. I see this all the time at funerals. There's, there's something inside of everyone gathered at a funeral that looks at the lifeless body in the casket. There's something innately that understands that's not the way it's supposed to be. That there's something more. They may try, very well try and suppress that, but it's there. It's innate. It's a longing for the eternal. And this really is the crux of the burden that God has given to man. That we exist in the temporal, but we long for the eternal. And until we can reconcile those two things, it will be a heavy burden upon our backs. It will feel heavy at times. This is why there's an inner restlessness to life for so many. This is why the changing seasons and the years passing us by can have a depressing effect on us. Because we weren't ultimately made for the temporal. And there's nothing in this temporal world that can satisfy the longing that we have in our hearts for eternity. Augustine said that our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in Christ. And so that the gift of eternity in our hearts is a terrible burden until it finds its relief in God and Jesus Christ. Jesus says eternal life is that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so he's the only way that this burden can be lifted. Verse 11 goes on to say that we want to know what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, we, we want to know his master plan. We want to know what it's all about. We want to know why certain things happen in our lives at the various stages of our life. But God has made it such that we can't. All we see at any point in time is a very small slice, a small glimpse of what he's doing in our lives and in this world in the here and now. And because we can't always see the bigger picture, sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. One of the gifts that was on my wish list this past Christmas was a newer Google Chromecast. And so for those of you that don't know, this is a device that allows you to stream content or videos from your computer or your phone to your TV. And so I had the first version of a Chromecast, and it worked well on my old TV. But this past year, we bought a new-to-us TV that had upgraded picture quality, and so I wanted an upgraded Chromecast to match the picture quality. And for those of you who care, it's not 4K. Okay, I don't have a 4K TV, it's 1080p, but I can't even tell the difference at this point anyway. It's just clear, it's good picture. Apparently 1080p TVs have over 2 million pixels, okay? So when you're looking at your TV, that means there's over 2 million little squares of color that make up the larger picture. Imagine for a moment that on your TV you turned it on and you just saw one pixel at a time, or even just a handful of pixels. Okay, you'd probably throw it out. It wouldn't paint a very beautiful picture for you. In fact, it wouldn't paint a picture at all. You, you would have no idea what you're looking at. It's just a big square. But if you had the ability to zoom out and to see all the pictures, then it would make sense, and you'd see it's a beautiful, clear picture. Well, as we think about our lives and the passing of time and discerning the beginning from the end and how it all fits together, this is sort of what our passage is getting at. It's as though all we see is one pixel or a few pixels. But if we were able to zoom out and see the big picture, we would see and understand how beautiful it all is and how perfect it is. I'll read another quote from Derek Kidner's commentary. I found it so helpful. He's speaking about kind of the rigid, robotic nature of time. But then how Solomon says that everything's beautiful in its time, and this is his, what, he, what he says. Instead of frozen perfection... There is a kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time, and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of our Creator. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its Creator does, whole and entire, from beginning to end." We're all created with this longing for eternity. We, we want to know the beginning from the end, but ultimately that's not ours to know. Here's the third reality of our existence. 
Number three, we all are awaiting our death and the judgment that's to come. All of us are awaiting our death and the judgment that's to come. And I know this final point, point may seem upsetting, but it's true. We have, we have to face the truth. It's what Solomon reminds us of in verses 16 to 21. In verse 16, the preacher mentions now that he's seen in this world injustice triumph everywhere, even in places of righteousness, in places of where justice is supposed to be upheld. In the courts of man, even there, injustice triumphs. And so we, we see here that the world Solomon lived in is not very different than the world we live in. Injustice triumphing even in the courts. This is why he says elsewhere earlier in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. Our world's not very different than his. And so our hope for justice cannot be in the courts of man, because even there wickedness is found, Solomon says. Where is it found then? Well, in verse 17, it says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And so verse 17 connects this group of verses with the ones that have come before it, building upon this idea that there is a time for every matter. And so some may ask as they read verses 16 and 17, if, if God is so in control of all things including the changing of times and the events of our lives, why is there still injustice? Why does he let wickedness go unchecked? Why is there injustice even in places of righteousness? Well, verse 17 teaches us that just as the other seasons come to an end and have their appointed time, so will evil and injustice. Just as God appointed a proper time for everything else, so he has appointed a proper time for judgment. Look at those three words in verse 17. It says, God will judge. He will. And we don't know when this will happen, but we know that it will. As sure as spring follows winter, God will judge. And he will do so at the right time. It's not for us to know when. It's almost as though he adds a 15th couplet to verses 1 to 8. There's a time for injustice and there's a time to be judged. There's a time where you can sin, but there's coming a time where you will be judged. We move on through the text and we see that verses 18 to 22 hearken back to verse 2 and they discuss the end of life, our death. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. With respect to our ultimate fate in this world, Solomon says, you're no different than an animal. We all will die. Notice the emphasis on the word all. He's trying to make a point here. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. No exceptions. And this is why we say death is the great equalizer. Time passes us by in this world. The years go on until the day we die. This is true for all of us. We don't like to think about it, but we have to confront this truth. It's important. We are all awaiting death, and then after that comes judgment. There's no way around it. There's no escaping this reality. People try and escape it. They try not to think about death. They want to move on from times of mourning because they don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about their own destiny. Some people try and freeze themselves and hope that in the future they'll figure out a way to restore their consciousness to their frozen body. Some people are dreaming about how they can upload their consciousness to the cloud or to a computer system, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's sad, but it's because they want to try and remain in this world and put off death, but it won't work. All will return to dust. All will die and all will be judged by God. Hebrews 9.27 puts it this way. It says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Okay, if you can hear my voice, then this is true of you. 
You will one day die, and after that will come judgment. The depths of the wickedness of mankind will be exposed, and every evil act, whether done in public or in private, will be judged. And so there you have it, three somewhat pessimistic realities of our existence, but they're truthful. We all are slaves to the tyranny of time. We all are created with a longing for eternity. We all are awaiting our death and the judgment that's to come. And so the question before us is, that, is then this, what now? What now? Where do we go from here in light of the changing seasons of life, in light of the death that's awaiting us and the judgment that's to come? How do I live in the here and now? How does this affect my day-to-day life? How ought I to live today knowing that these truths, these things are true? And so we'll briefly conclude by looking at three responses to these truths. Three responses. Number one, fear God and be saved. Fear God and be saved. The only wise and rational response to all of this is to fear the one who is in control of it all. To fear the one who is Lord over time. To fear the one who will one day judge every wicked deed, who sits on the judgment seat, who will right every wrong. This is the way God has so designed it. This is why he's placed a heavy burden upon our backs. Not so that we can try and lift it off on our own, but so that we can ask him to lift it off. So that we can come to him for relief. This is why he set eternity in man's heart so that we would fear him and find fulfillment of that longing in him. Verse 14 clearly says, God has done all this. God has done it so that people fear before him. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, the Bible says. And he says over and over and over again in his writings that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to grow in wisdom in 2023, learn what it means to fear the Lord. Learn what it means to revere him, to stand in awe of him, to truly worship him with your whole being, to orient your lives around him. And you will grow in wisdom. Maybe you're here this morning and if you're honest, you still very much feel that heavy burden upon your back. The years are passing you by. A new year is not something to be excited about for you. The meaninglessness of life and the passing of time and the mundane existence of day-to-day living is absolutely crushing you. And you're looking for relief. And the thought of death and judgment this morning terrifies you. Because you know that you've sinned. This is why you try to suppress the thoughts of death and judgment. Because you know you've done wrong and the guilt and the shame from the shameful things that you've done only add and increase that burden. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that the only way that you can be freed of that burden, the only way you can find relief, the only way you can have it be lifted from you is not to look for relief in this world, but to find it in Jesus Christ. That's it. He's the only answer. And so you want to talk about time, listen to what it says in Galatians 4.4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We just remembered this at Christmas time. 2,000 years ago, at the appointed perfect time, Jesus was born. The one who is outside of time, the one who is Lord of time, who is sovereign over it, who created it, steps into it and becomes bound by time and lives As a human being, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a life of complete sinless perfection. And another way you can say that is he made the best use of his time. Think about that for a moment. Jesus never wasted a second of time, not even a millisecond, because he lived a perfect life. He made the best use of his time on this earth. And then Romans 5, 6 tells us that while we were still weak, while we were still being crushed under the heavy burden of life, And at the heavy burden of our sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the good news. Jesus died for sinners like you. He died for ungodly people like us, like you and me. He bore God's wrath in our place. We just celebrated and remembered this through the Lord's table. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, securing eternal life for those who believe in him, thereby satisfying that longing for eternity that we have. And so all that to say, do you have a heavy burden this morning? 
Did you walk in here with a sore back, spiritually speaking, because of all the burdens that you carry? Not knowing why you wake up in the, this morning, uh, this morning not, not knowing how you can rid yourself of the guilt and shame that you experience? Well, if that's you, Jesus says to you in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am joy- gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my what? My burden is light. You can trade in that heavy burden for the light burden of Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. This is the only way. This is the only way to escape the judgment that is to come. And I would pray that today would be a day of salvation. I believe there's no better way to start a new year than to be saved from sin and blessed with eternal life and to be given a clear conscience before God, to be made right with God. The only way is through Jesus Christ. So would you do it today? Would you come to Jesus? Would you be saved? Would you be given purpose in this life? It's only in him. The years are passing us by. Death is around the corner. Judgment is coming. So fear God and be saved. Number two, do good and be sanctified. Do good and be sanctified. Look with me at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Okay, such a simple yet profound truth. You want to live in light of the truths, the realities that we've looked at? Here's how. Seek to do good. Use the time God's given you for good. Seek out your own sanctification. In fact, you want to know what God's will is for your life, what his purpose is, what his master plan is for your life, even though you can't always see it. Do you want to know what it is? It's so simple. Do good and be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 clearly says, for this is the will of God for your life. Okay, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? He doesn't have to write it in the clouds because he's already written it in a book. It says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. He wants you to grow in holiness. What's the will of God for your life in 2023? Be sanctified, grow in holiness. Kill your sin at all costs. Do whatever you can to put off your sin to remove it from you and to pursue greater righteousness in Jesus. Be jealous for your own sanctification in the year ahead. It's okay to be jealous for that thing. Sanctification is the lens through which you should evaluate every significant decision you make this next year. Will it help you be sanctified? If the answer is yes, you don't need to ask any more questions. Will it help you be sanctified? If the answer is yes, then ask her to marry you. If the answer is yes, then take the job offer. If the answer is yes, then try to have another child. If the answer is yes, then share the gospel with that person that intimidates you so much. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. There is nothing better for you than to be joyful and to do good. And I think that's a pretty good all-encompassing resolution for 2023. Do good and be sanctified. Finally, number three, our third response to these realities, enjoy life to the glory of God. Okay, it's amazing to me that, I said it already, this book filled with so much pessimism includes so many statements about finding joy in this life. Verse 12 there says, be joyful. There's nothing better than to just be joyful. Verse 13 says also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay, some people think that Christians are all about asceticism, that we we just deny ourselves of any pleasure and joy and of everything that would bring us any sort of happiness. But it's the complete opposite. Christianity is about joy. In fact, the only way you can have joy in this life is through Jesus Christ. He's come that we may have life and life abundantly, he says. He says in verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. You see, once you come to Jesus, once you have faith in Jesus, you'll you'll be given a whole new perspective on life. You'll be able to see things through an eternal lens of faith, and that changes everything. You begin to understand that the changing seasons of life are part of God's grand design for his glory. 
and for the salvation and the good of his people. In fact, he works all things together for our good and for the building up of his kingdom. You'll delight in the fact that he chose you, even though you didn't deserve it, and even though you don't always see the bigger picture, he chose you by his sovereign grace to have a small part to play in his master plan, and that's something to rejoice in. Verse 13 says, this is God's gift to man. Okay, when we trust Christ and we see things through this lens, everything becomes a gift in life. Because we understand it's more than we deserve. The ability to do something so simple as to eat a meal becomes something we can rejoice in. Going to work no longer is a chore. It's something that we get to do. It's a gift. It's more than we deserve. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has beautifully created you. He's gifted you with certain abilities and mental capacities. He's provided you, if you have a job, with a job to use them. And so learn to rejoice in your toil and in your work. And seek to do it all to God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 similarly says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But it's only possible to have this perspective on life if you have God in your life. There's no other way. Solomon says it this way in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. It's only possible through God. You need to know that life is not about you. It's about the one who created you. And until you realize that and you live accordingly, everything you do in this life and in this year ahead will be done in vain. It will all be vanity. It will all be pointless. It will all be a striving after the wind. But once you come to Jesus and you orient your life around him, that changes everything. Life suddenly becomes joyful. What was once mundane suddenly becomes meaningful. Eating and drinking suddenly become holy activities. And soon you'll be able to see and believe, even as you see the years go by, that everything truly is beautiful in its time. 